Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This episode of the VanCast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Well, after the last eight games, we can honestly say, Bruce, there it isn't, Drancer. Just two wins in their last eight. And we'll get into the, the situation surrounding the team and just what we've seen from the last couple of games. 3-2 uh, overtime loss last night against Edmonton where they blew a two-goal lead heading into the third period. But first, we have got a general manager, Patrick Alvin, formerly of the Pittsburgh Penguins, is the newest Vancouver Canucks GM, the 12th GM of this franchise. Uh, we weren't surprised. Uh, you were among those that confirmed the story. But what do you make of not just the hiring, but just how he came across today? Well, for, before we get into hockey news, can I, I, want to t- I want to tell you something that I learned this week. I uh, learned, what we learned? I, I learned that there is a bunch of VanCast listeners who listen at like double speed. So they like double speed. When you play a podcast on the bottom left, you can change the speed that you're listening to a podcast on. Oh, okay. And so you can speed it up so that we sound like really fast. Like we talk really fast like this. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the, uh, I, I, I heard that those people, when they listen to us at one speed, it sounds to them like we've had like, um, <laughs> like we sound like we're drunk or something. We're not chipmunks. Well, we sound like chipmunks at double speed, but I, I wonder if, like, not today, because it's too important, there's too much Canucks news, but I feel like one day we should do an episode where we talk really fast intentionally, just to see if we can mess with them. Um, anyway, be I, good. Boy, I, don't I think I talk fast enough as it is, but I, all right. I know, do I also I'm think I'm a fast talker, but honestly, I was thinking about it, and I was just like, it broke my brain. People are just, like, downloading the VanCast into their cranium as quickly as possible. Blew my mind. <laughs> Blew my mind! Shows how good the information is from you. They just can't wait to get it faster, sooner. Speaking of mind-blowing, the Vancouver Canucks 
They interviewed a bunch of candidates. Then they conducted in-person interviews with five candidates. They talked to Tampa Bay Director of Hockey Operations, Matthew Darsh. They talked to Sean Burke, most recently of the Montreal Canadiens, but long tenure in Arizona as well. They spoke with Canucks Assistant General Manager, Derek Clancy. He had an in-person interview. And, of course, uh, Scott Mellenby, who was once a Vancouver Canucks executive, uh, most recently of the Montreal Canadiens in an AGM role. Finally, they settled on the man, Patrick Alvin, who I think we all thought was the front runner for most of this process. And, you know, Patrick is a very bright guy. I've spent the day talking to Jason Carmanos and uh, Jason Botterill and Bill Guerin and some of uh, Rutherford's lieutenants just to get a sense of, of, of Patrick Alvin and some of the common refrains, work ethic off the charts, strong manager. Uh, extraordinarily prepared, um, has a habit of challenging Jim Rutherford, right? Rutherford likes that. He likes to work with people who will say, like, I disagree with you, and here's why. Um, Alvin's overall approach is an information gatherer, right? He, he likes to gather it all, uh, and once he comes with an opinion, holds it strongly, holds it strongly and, and isn't afraid to to stand up for that, stick up to that, for that opinion, uh, stand up to, to Rutherford in particular, when they disagree. He was introduced to the media today, and I thought he came across as being pretty deferential to Jim Rutherford, all told. D- didn't you think? In, in a lot of ways, it felt like Rutherford handled the big picture items, and Alvin was introducing himself. But, but it, it didn't feel like your classic GM press conference. Now, th- that's because the president of hockey operations in Vancouver's structure will clearly be the final decision maker and the primary spokesperson for the team. But, you know, we sort of expect one thing out of GM, inter- uh, GM introductory press conference. And this didn't feel like that, did it? No, it didn't. I mean, you know, it, on both sides, quite honestly, because, you know, I, I expected, I just think that, you and I both asked the question on division of, of power, division of labor, you know, one or the other, right? You asked it from, uh, you know, from from one standpoint. For me, it was just more a case of, look, you've had a chance to evaluate, right? Um, whereas Patrick has not had a chance to evaluate. So, as you're going into this critical time, do you give him time and you continue the reins? He's like, nope, he's got the keys to the car. Right? Like he, he made it clear that it's his job. He's going to do that work. Uh, yes, there's a portion of it that's going to be collaborative, and it's not like he's going to go out and trade JT Miller tomorrow without approval from higher up. Uh, you know, much like if Rutherford were to do it himself, he'd probably have to get the permission of the owner. So there is a certain amount of that, but he he made it clear that it was going to be his job, right? I, w- I was surprised that those lines were divided that clearly this fast. Yeah, I mean, I thought to Rutherford's detailing of all the areas that this Canucks organization desperately needs to modernize in, right? Uh, Revamped facilities. (laughs) Um, New practice facilities. That's not a small CapEx project, bud, right? Like that is a significant, significant investment, especially if you want to build something close to where most of the players live downtown, right? I mean, that Plaza of Nations deal, which sort of blew up in and around the pandemic, that would have been perfect for them. And now... I mean, where, where do you even put a practice facility? Like, it's, it is going to be very complicated unless you do the Detroit Red Wings build it underneath model. So, but that would require a new building and that's even more complicated. So, <laughs> I mean, no, no question when, when Rutherford got into detailing, 
you know, rethinking prospect tournament, rethinking development camp, rethinking facilities in Vancouver, rethinking facilities in Abbotsford, practice facility. It was just like, oh, right, you know, this club hasn't done anything to their locker room since the Olympics. You know, like there's a lot to do to modernize where this club is in an NHL context, especially relative to where some of these other teams are, where you walk into their dressing room and it feels like you're walking onto the bridge of the Star Trek Enterprise, right? I mean, there is distance to travel. And, you know, I I thought his suggestion that Alvin would be really have his hand on the wheel on the day to day. I mean, I did buy that, right? I do think in terms of running player development, running, you know, the overall scouting apparatus, which clearly they're going to rethink amateur scouting meetings. Like the Canucks have been holding amateur scouting meetings this week. Um, You know, clearly there's got to be change there. I also thought it was interesting that Alvin kept coming back to talk about European and NCAA free agents. He kept sort of talking about it as a, as a crucial path. And for an organization that needs a lot of help, you know, that's the right place to start, right? You can't, you have to be, you know, the thing about free agents is you don't use a draft pick on them, right? (laughs) It's, it's as many as you can recruit and sign and justify using a contract slot on. And I thought that was interesting, especially because as I spoke with some of Rutherford's, you know, former Penguins lieutenants and some of Alvin's former colleagues today, uh, you know, one thing they talked a lot about was Alvin's involvement, even when he was on the amateur side, in the recruitment of European free agents on his deep network of contacts in European hockey. Uh, they discussed his understanding of how am- the amateur side and player development talk to and support each other, um, you know, and, and how important that was in the success that Pittsburgh had, uh, you know, Mark donking it up. So it was a, it was a pretty fascinating series of conversations for me in terms of uh, the character uh, sort of, um, I guess the character assessments <laughs> that, uh, that were offered from Alvin's former colleagues on Alvin, but also, hearing him talk and hearing him focus so rigorously on some of the things that I was told to expect uh, was a pretty eye-opening series of experiences for me today as I assessed the 12th general manager in Canucks franchise history. You know, for me, you know, when I look at his background and I compare it to Jim Benning, it really is a scouting background. But what I think you know, makes me a lot more comfortable was the way this organization is attempting to build itself out now. And you've talked, you and I both talked before at games and, you know, on air to a lesser degree about just create a professional organization. Yeah. Right. Like that's been missing here. Win in the boardroom and then win on the ice because you can't do the latter without the former. But it sounds like that's the way this is headed. Right. When you look at the uh, Emily Castonguay hire, when you look at uh, Rachel Dory earlier, uh, you know, to, to help build out the analytics department, you know, when, when you look at um, where they're going in terms of the, you know, the number of AGMs they're bringing in now versus what they had before and what those roles are going to look like and additional roles for the twins and, you know, additional uh, additional input for Ryan Johnson and just kind of there, there's just more meat on the bone here right now. And and that's the part that encourages me the most because I do get the sense that Rutherford is not bringing in, you know, we talked about Emily Castonguay as as checking a box and how she's not that. Um, But it's, it's even from his standpoint, he's not just trying to check boxes within an organization. I think he actually wants to listen and think differently about how to operate things. Well, apparently that's 
standard operating procedure for Jim Rutherford. Like he does want to have people who disagree with him, right? That's an important part of his process overall. Um, and I think that's where him and Alvin, you know, who have a lot of mutual trust, but sort of also a mutual approach where they want to gather information and then kind of make the best decision they can. I think that speaks to, to Rutherford's, you know, commitment to doubling the size of the analytics staff and why he's always had an analytics director. He's, not someone who just wants to have his beliefs confirmed. He wants to look into it. He wants to be challenged a little bit. And so, you know, I do think that's part and parcel uh, with what he wants. I think that's part of why Alvin and his comfort level with Alvin and his trust for Alvin, um, you know, brought us to today where Alvin beat out the other contenders for, for the job. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see how it all functions. It's going to be, Really interesting to see if it all works as well in practice as it does on paper. But you can tell that the president of hockey operations, you can tell that Rutherford is excited about the team that he's built. I think the fan base has responded pretty favorably to it. And I think there's more to come. Like, I do think that Ryan Johnson's going to get a promotion. I would expect AGM. Um, I actually thought that might happen today, but, uh, but obviously it didn't. Um, I do think that's coming. I do think there's another woman who will be added, if not this week, then shortly thereafter to to the hockey operations department in some capacity. Uh, there is another candidate that Rutherford's excited about that if he can land, that's sort of more like a month plus away, um, but is also a woman. So I do think by the time he's done, you're going to have a front office that bears very little resemblance, both in terms of point of view and identity, uh, to what you'll find elsewhere in the NHL. And and look, that's a good look on Rutherford. That's a good look on the Canucks organization. Um, I'm curious to see how it all functions as this team begins to make some of the big decisions that Rutherford hinted at. And, and that was the other big takeaway today, don't you think? Like the Yeah, we've got some big decisions to make. You didn't need a fine-tooth comb to read between the lines of what he was saying, right? Like this is a president of hockey operations that's beginning to conclude that the playoffs are a long shot. That gives the team and the coaching staff a ton of credit for how they've competed and played and trended over the course of the past six weeks, and yet doesn't seem all that convinced about the composition of the roster or the options available to him at the moment. And I, I do think bold moves are just a matter of time at this point. At least that's what I'm hearing uh, in terms of, and not like what I'm hearing from sources. Like that's what I'm hearing every time Rutherford and Boudreaux too talk about what's here. I, I hear, you know, effectively like change is probably coming and probably coming sooner than later. Yeah. I mean, he was clear. He said, we need to add players. Number one, he said, we need to add cap space. And yeah. the fact that this organization's in a position where they're where they are in the standings and operating as close to the cap as they are, that's a bad thing. Well, they're over right? the cap. Like, that's the thing. They're over the cap, right? Because yeah. once yeah, you yeah. factor in the Halak overages... Right. It's not just yep. that they're at the cap and the 23rd place team in point percentage and they have no cap flexibility and they don't own all seven of their draft picks for this upcoming draft. And they have one of the worst prospect systems in hockey. Like they're actually over the cap once a lock hits those bonuses. And then there could be more coming with Hoaglander and Bob Coles. So, I mean, they're, you know, as as dramatic the as a pronouncement about their cap situation was from Rutherford, he actually undersold the state that they're in from a flexibility standpoint. So 
but can uh, Alvin at this point make those decisions, it, which Rutherford indicated is going to happen, as I said earlier. But th- like to me, that's just not realistic. I mean, if you're going to wait until the trade deadline, okay, he's now got time to assess. But between now and then, it's got to be more Rutherford at this point because he knows what he's dealing with, does he not? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure. But also this process has played out for long enough. Um, you know, the, the scuttlebutt within the industry has been that, you know, Alvin had been um, – not not like on his way out, but sidelined somewhat as the pen- Penguins went through like pro meetings and amateur meetings with an understanding that he was likely to leave. Like, I'm sure he's been watching closely, too. Right. Sure. I'm sure they've been talking. And, and also, you know, what I've heard about Alvin and his rigorous, thorough habit of preparation suggests to me that, in fact, in going through the interview process, he probably spent a ton of time figuring out exactly what's going on here, right? Exactly what he thinks needs to happen. So I don't think he's like, this is not day one. I think it would be a mistake to view this as day one for Alvin and day or, or week six for six or seven for Jim Rutherford. Like I think, sure. I think Jim's been eyeing this certainly since American Thanksgiving. And I'm sure Alvin started eyeing it shortly thereafter. Um, and certainly over the course of preparing to interview, um, I, I would imagine he has gone deep into every layer of this roster and, and what they have and what they need in his view. Yeah, and b- those those needs are, uh, I'm not going to say few and far between, but the opposite of that, they are plentiful. Uh, and uh, well, let's get into some of those. Uh, we'll, we'll take a quick break. We want to talk about Yaro Halak and some of the other names that have been kicked around and just how realistic potential moves involving any of them are. But first... Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We've seen two pretty good performances by Spencer Martin Drancer. Uh, I tweeted out kind of half tongue in cheek. Excellent uh, performances, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, at some point I said, okay, I've seen enough. I think it was at the end of the first period. I've seen enough trade halak, right? Now, uh, <laughs> oh, that, was, that, that was half tongue in cheek, half, because to me, I have seen enough. And I say that only because I'm not sitting here suggesting at any point that Spencer Martin's a bona fide NHL goaltender, legit, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, as currently constructed, the schedule, the roster, all of it, you got four back-to-backs. So let's say you need another goaltender to play five games more max. I'm good with Spencer Martin for those five games. I am totally comfortable with him for five games. And if you still are of the opinion that the Canucks have a chance to make the playoffs, well, guess what? If Thatcher Demko gets hurt, it's over. It doesn't matter what happens at that point. It is over. So if you're saying to me, if there's a way to get Halak to uh, to wave, we all understand he's got a no-move clause. 
if there's a way to get him to buy into a move, I would be more than comfortable with Spencer Martin for the five games that they potentially need him for between now and the end of the season. Well, so, Fair? so yeah, I mean, Spencer Martin has looked baseline competent. He's actually looked better than that. So but it's it, really good. He's looked really good. But at the very least, you'd say, you know, over the next 10 games that he plays in the NHL, I'm willing to bet that Spencer Martin is, you know, no more than 0.10, like below NHL average, which would be, you know, roughly 900 save percentage, right? Like, I, sure. I, I'd be willing yep. to bet that based on what I've seen. I think he can be an average NHL goaltender. I think there's a chance he can be better than that. Um, I think that sh- I think Yaroslav Halak is a far better bet to be an average goaltender, and I think there's a chance he's slightly better than that in his next ten games. But what's the marginal value of that over Spencer Martin? And is it worth? And is it worth an additional one point five million on your cap next season? The answer is no, particularly once you account for the situation that the Canucks are in, where they have eleven percent playoff odds according to Dom decision, right? I mean, maybe maybe your arithmetic changes if they reel off five straight right now. But it but it feels like right now is is like kind of the last this is the last chance saloon. You know, like they lost in overtime to Edmonton. Right? They the Edmonton gained one point on them. But because the Oilers have games in hand and the tiebreaker and are ahead of them in points, the Canucks' playoff odds dropped 4% with that overtime loss yesterday. That's how slim the margin is for this team at this point. Like they are a true playoff long shot. And within that context, things have to be weighted accordingly. And and to Rutherford's credit, I thought his assessment was incredibly clear eyed. Right? I, I thought the focus on cap space was amazing. Like, you know, the we need a cushion. We need a cap space cushion. We can't be at the cap or this close to the cap and this far out of the playoffs, you know, so often, so often it's like we need young players, right? Or, or we need draft picks, right? Rutherford wasn't going there. What he was focusing on was he was like, I need options. I just need options. I need a route to realistically improve this team quickly. And I can't do it without cap space. I thought that was an enormously telling moment that sort of speaks to, Everything we're discussing, whether it's Locke, whether it's JT Miller, whether it's some of the middle class players that, that the Canucks have, whether it's the, your, your Dickinson, Pearson, um, Pullman, Hamannick class players. And obviously, you know, I, I list those four together because they're between two and a half and, and three and a half million dollars in, in salary. But, but clearly the return you're getting in terms of how they're performing from Pearson and Pullman is materially different from what Hamannick and Dickinson have done this season, right? Uh, but but nonetheless, you know, can you can you find a money in money out deal for one of those guys that improves your team? Can you are you willing to move a core piece on a big ticket? Um, like those are the big questions that hang around this team now, and and I think a focus, I think our focus needs to shift. Maybe maybe we give them another week of grace time. Like maybe you give them this upcoming road trip and and see how they fare. But we are quickly reaching a point where the conversation needs to shift to. What can they move as opposed to, you know, what spot in the Western Conference standings can they climb to? 
Yeah, see, I'm curious to see if Canuck fans can actually do that yet. I think there's a large percentage of fans that have now all of a sudden pretended these last eight games didn't happen because of what the roster looks like because of COVID, and they want to get them all back and then give them a week and gauge them. But at that point, it's too late, right? I mean, as, as we look at uh, where the COVID numbers line up right now, I think the expectation is um, – Boudreaux confirmed as much that Halak will join the team on the road in Winnipeg. Uh, I think there's a belief that Garland will also be there uh, that day. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to play, but that they're available to join the team at that point. And then the following game on the weekend, they should get Bo Horvat um, back again, not necessarily on the ice, but with the team by then. Uh, and that Demko potentially joins the team on the road uh, because he's not available quite yet. He did skate this morning. So and then there's he'll so just many- be down Tanner Pearson. And then you'll just be down Tanner but, but, Pearson, but, right? So, but no chance Pearson rejoins the team on this trip because by the time his five days have lapsed, right, they'll be in the States and you're not sending him to the States with a, as a recent positive. Well, you can after five days, right? Like he's allowed to come at that point. Well, he's, he could go over, but could he come back? If he, if he joins the team in Chicago for Sunday and wants to try and get back on Tuesday night, I don't know. I don't think you do it. I don't think you take the risk. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I do know that if you are a if you are positive, um, and you're out of quarantine. So if the five days are what counts as quarantine provincially, if you're out of if you're out of quarantine, that you are allowed to cross with a positive into right? the like US. once you. Yeah, once you've passed that, actually, let me take that back. That's not true. You've got to be. You've got to be ten days. You've got to be ten That's days. That's what I'm passed. saying. So, like, yeah, you have to be ten be, days. He'll passed. be six days out, so he could yeah. technically leave NHL protocol and rejoin the team. But you're not sending him to the states when you're then going to try and come back at eight days. You know, after eight days. Positive. Yeah, it's got to be ten so days to I'm come back saying, from the U.S. Pearson's probably done for this whole road trip. And what's going to be interesting is, I mean, it's not a long list of players now on the Canucks who haven't tested positive, but there's a couple who haven't tested positive to our knowledge during Omicron, during the Omicron outbreaks. And, um, and if they are to test positive at any point tomorrow, the next day, or the day that they play Calgary Saturday, um, you know, they're, they're, they're gone for at least that double header. Right. So it's just, it's just still hour to hour with what this lineup's going to look like. And while that has clearly crushed the Canucks over the last eight games and is a big part of the end of the Boudreaux bump. Uh, the fact remains that almost 450 NHL players have tested positive over the course of this, of the last uh, six weeks. Like every team has dealt with this. Yeah, no question. You know, and you, you look at the Euler roster last night and that was the Euler roster, right? Yeah, um, Mike Smith, notwithstanding, whereas it, it clearly wasn't for the Canucks. So, you know, I, I don't know if we're overplaying or underplaying this. My gut feel about how we're treating this, I think we're underplaying it. And I say that because it Und- was Underplaying so, the impact? Yeah, and I say that because, like, it just destroyed the team a year ago, right? Like, you know, you, you lost games. You had to shut it down. Players experienced significant symptoms. Not all of them, but enough of them did. Um, and, they, you know, it was the worst outbreak in North American professional sports during that time. And so, you know, the Canucks were the outlier, whereas here, because everybody's dealing with it and everybody's missing games... Um, I almost think we're underplaying the impact that it's had because they've always had the majority of their players available. We have been playing games for the most part, other than a, a, you know a small break. Uh, they were able to practice during the first break. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there's. I, I almost feel like we're underplaying the impact that it's had through all of this. Yeah, maybe, maybe we are. Uh, it's an interesting thought. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to adjust my analysis to 
cope with COVID, right? I mean, I knew last time that I didn't expect much out of the Canucks down the stretch coming back from COVID because of what it had done to previous teams that had had significant team-level outbreaks. But this season, you know, I, I'm flying completely blind as to the impact of an o- Omicron outbreak. I, like, I wasn't surprised that the Flames struggled, right, once they got back to playing games. But now they look like they've leveled off and they're imposing again. So, you know, well, who knows? Like, I just, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to evaluate the impact of those losses and of the illness itself. On, on individual or team performance. And I suspect it'll take a long time before we really have a good handle on it. Just like, you know what? Just like really quickly, just just like we never really had a good grasp on, on how the flu wrecked teams, right? Like there's some series that the Canucks have played, playoff series in the past. The Flame, the flame series, the oh, Flame yeah, series in 94 too. And, uh, and of course the St. Louis series where it's like, yeah, I mean, do they come back and win those if those teams aren't completely, you know, vomiting? In, in the intermissions. Um, I don't know. I like, I don't know. We, we didn't know how to evaluate it then. I don't know how to evaluate COVID now. Not to say that COVID is the flu. I've, I've, I didn't, uh, to be clear, but just, just to draw the analogy that we're, I'm, I feel like I'm flying blind with it in a way I wasn't last year as an analyst. Back to Halak. Odds he gets moved. One in three. I would bet, I would, I would think it's less than likely, but I, I think it's possible. I still think it's possible. And when you say less than likely, I think it's less than likely based on him not wanting to move as opposed to the Canucks Correct. not having had the desire to move him. But he, he it's a three-dimensional deal. He, he gets to press send. So I don't think he's going to. The, the deal was done as a $3 million deal structured to navigate the cap a certain way. You know, like, I mean, from his perspective, Understood. he's like, no, we did a $3 million deal. Like, what? And that's totally fair. Totally fair. I will never bash a player for enforcing their clause. I think that's their professional obligation. Uh, it's up to them. Their discretion entirely. So, uh, if that's how he p- decides to play it, you know, fair game. I do wonder, like, you know, people keep saying Edmonton, right? I, I don't think Edmonton's a realistic spot. Like, you want to go to the cold in, in February and, and a team that's also... Out, uh, on the outside looking in in a playoff race and, and deal with that media scrutiny as the starter, like, you know, that doesn't sound like a good situation, right? But, but well, that's that's what I wonder. Is there a contender, like a bona fide contender in the East, uh, close, to, close to a place where his family would be comfortable that he'd consider? Uh, that, that's what I wonder. Like, and and I, I think there are teams that match that description, that could have some interest in a goaltender. I mean, I think about Pittsburgh. They're not getting a ton out of Casey DeSmith. Uh, could that be a situation that, that you know, that m- might uh, be a possibility? Um, you know, there, there are some teams like that, that that maybe could make some sense. Canucks lose last night. Uh, had a two-goal lead going into the third. Bit of a stinky goal to open the scoring for Edmonton. They wound up scoring just after a power play and then losing overtime. After the game, the one thing that stood out to me was um, Bruce Boudreaux was fairly critical of his top line. Talked about them needing to win more battles, be better on the boards and in the corners. Um, what'd you make of their performance and his his assessment? Yeah, I mean, they weren't great, right? The, the, the thing is, is when you line up your lines that way, right? You need them to win their matchup. They need to do damage score differential wise for you. And they didn't. And so I think that's... Fair. Like, I think that pointing that out is fair. Canucks got their goals shorthanded and four on four. 
They didn't score a five-on-five goal, and they needed to because their other matchup was the Lamico line versus Connor fucking McDavid. Like, my God. (laughs) And, you know, as I thought about it, and I asked Bruce Boudreau this after the game, right? I asked him how he thought the Lamico line had matched up with the McDavid line, and he was full of praise, and that praise was well justified. I thought that, you know, while their Corsi numbers, like while the shot attempt differential looked lopsided, uh, the overall shots generated with McDavid on the ice weren't through the roof. I, I do think that Lamico's line did a good job bottling them up for the most part. But Boudreau said of it, he had a really interesting comment. He said, I think that's our only forward line with the speed to really match up with them. Yeah, that, that jumped out at me. And I was like, oh, oh, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. You know, so it's like we're at the point today, Patrick Alvin, we need more speed and skill. Jim Rutherford, I like faster teams. Bruce Boudreaux, Lamico, Mott, and Highmore is my only line fast enough to match up with McDavid, right? Travis Green, we're not a run and gun team. We're, we're not we're not the get up and run and, you know, we're not the fast team. Uh, you sense a through line? You sense, a, you sense a consistency that every single person who's publicly commented on what this team is keeps noting the lack of speed? Do you think there's something there? You think there's something there, Farhan? Uh, yeah, I think there's some consistency <laughs> to that message. Not an easy thing to go out and get, but yeah, for sure. Look, it's obvious to everybody, but it probably does send a message to your top players that there is something lacking in your game as well. Yeah, it's not. you're not wrong. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will uh, we'll dive into what's ahead for these guys. And uh, it might even give you our picks for this weekend's NFL championship games. I know some listeners were critical of that. So we're not going to make it too long, but we do have to do it just because that's what we do. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So, Drencher, let me ask you this. You know, we've talked about the contracts around certain core players. If you had to move one of Bo Horvat, Brock Besser, 
or JT Miller, who would you move? Oh boy. That's a really tough one for me. I, it, I can't answer it without understanding what extension talks look like for Brock Besser. And well, and the same for JT Miller. Well, yeah, yeah. But Besser, Besser is the most pressing one because he's expiring, right? Like, you know, if I go to Besser and I say, yeah, you're entitled to a 7-5 qualifying offer, but we can arbitrate you, like we can take you to pl- uh, team elected arbitration, um, especially if your scoring doesn't turn around in the second half. Um, you know, could we do a, you know, five-year, $5.5 million deal, right? That takes Besser till he's 29 uh, at a cap hit I quite like for a guy who I consider to be like right-handed Thomas Tatar, Right? Like, you know, he's a really good play driving top six forward, but I don't know that he's uh, at the moment anyway. I like that top line, you know, killer. And that's fine. I can win with that guy. I like that guy, actually. I think he's a great player. So, you know, does that work? Is that the starting point of a productive conversation or not? And if it's not, then Besser probably skyrockets to the top of my list. But if it is, then Besser's the third on my list. So I, I sort of would put him almost in a different category. And then I'd rate Miller above Horvat because I think Horvat has some unique value in this market because of how gracefully he navigates our bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just think Horvat, I don't even believe in clutch and I think Horvat's clutch. So Horvat would be for me, the, the bottom guy on that list, depending on, on the Besser swing and then JT Miller would be either the second most likely or the, or the, or like would be the first or the second, depending on again, the Besser thing. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's my basic assessment there. I, a little squirrely. I kind of didn't answer your question. No, no, you did because there's context around it. Whereas I'm looking at it beyond the context. I'm just looking at it in terms of player value. Right. And I think they're all going to be on a, on large tickets, potentially Miller based on his point production, the largest of the tickets. Uh, I know that right now, you know, we, we talk about his current scoring. We just talk about, you know, his attitude, him driving, you know, dragging guys into the fight and all of this. But there's another side to JT Miller that when things aren't going well, isn't necessarily good, right? Like there, like there is a, a polarizing end to JT Miller. When things are going bad, he's great. And when things aren't, you know, it, it can be tough. Besser is... He's a natural scorer. Scoring is tough to find, but he's actually a streaky scorer, right? So there are times when when he's not scoring, there's just nothing else being brought to the table, right? There's a, there's a couple of different ways to view these guys as players and where they fit in your lineup, right? And and the dollars associated with that. So and then you know if Pedersen is in fact turning the corner, now your three year deal you get a little nervous about at year three, which is going to come up right after all of these guys in consecutive years, right? So. Yeah. You know, when you when you look at it from that perspective, you know, I, I'm like you. I think there is a unique value to, to Bo Horvat. He'd be the least likely for me to want to move. Um, and, and so it comes down to Besser or Miller. And when this team actually contends, one of them won't be here, which begs the question, can they contend without one of them? And again, yeah, that's, that's context because you've got you've to wait and see what, Jim Rutherford and, and Patrick Alvino are going to be able to bring in in lieu of those guys. But when you look at them, you need them all to contend, but we don't know what it'll look like if they move on from them and what the, what the financial flexibility of moving on from one of them could potentially bring. I mean, put it this way. I think you have to be open to hearing what returns and interest looks like on all three, frankly, just with where the Canucks are at and with how desperate they must be and they have to be 
uh, for change, for cap space, for a new direction, for future assets, for picks, for young players. Like all of those things are things this team needs. And, and I think once you know the return and once you have a sense too of what extensions look like, potentially, or at least a, at least a rough outline, then at least you can begin to be like, you know, it's actually a really simple question, right? I, I especially can get too cute by half in my analysis sometimes. But, but for me, it's actually a really simple equation here that you have to answer for yourself. And it's, are you closer to winning the 2024-2025 Stanley Cup with those three guys at the age they'll be and the numbers they'll be at? Or are you closer to winning the 2024-25 Stanley Cup with what they bring in return plus the cap space? And that's the fundamental decision that will have to be made by Rutherford and Alvin as they navigate the next six, seven weeks. It does feel to me, though, like while the, there's not pressure on the team to make a quick move, especially with all, all three of those guys, they're not expiring UFA guys, um, you know, they do have the ability to wait and see if they don't love what they see or, or if they want to uh, let it ride a little bit longer with Boudreau. Like th- there's the, the only urgency in my view to making those moves. And this was something that was brought up to me on 650 by a sharp commentator named Sean, who suggested that the real reason you want to move a guy like a JT Miller before the deadline would be that the assets you get back might have an, a, a quicker turnaround timeline in terms of being useful contributors for you than if you wait until after the season and are getting future assets and on and on. I'm sensitive to that. I think that's actually a pretty smart point, especially considering the Canucks' need, um, you know, or, or certainly, you know, focus on trying to turn this around relatively quickly as opposed to oh, suffering through another extended rebuild. The re-rebuild. Yeah, right. Winnipeg on Thursday, Calgary on Saturday, and then back-to-back Monday, Tuesday, Chicago, and Nashville all on the road. Tough. It's it's a tough road. Um, what are you looking to see? Because the All-Star break is – it's not the trade deadline, but it also is a window where people gather and activity – like the, the first layer of those discussions quite often happen at the All-Star break, and then they, they get consummated a little bit later. But, you know – what do you need to see over these next four games to determine which way this team needs to go if you're Alvin? I mean, I think you need three wins and both in regulation against Calgary and Winnipeg. You win, you win two in regulation this week uh, or on Thursday and Saturday, and then one of the two back-to-backs. Uh, those don't have to be in regulation, but you need a third win there. Um, then, then maybe you say wait and see. And unfortunately, like, I'd like to say what I want to see is a continuation of strong five-on-five process from the team because I think that matters and they have been better five-on-five under Boudreaux, but it's like the hours getting late. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter at this point. It doesn't matter. And it's like, I'd love to say I I want to see their PK just be not terrible. It doesn't even have to be good, just not terrible. Um, But again, it doesn't matter. Wins. Wins now are what matters. This team is going to make a case to stay together well they're out of time there's no margin anymore so three wins three wins that's my answer changing gears a little bit uh you and i were talking about this uh, last night at the game and and you, you you gave me the big head shake you shouldn't have done it and then we said we'll talk about it today on the show um jacob panetta jordan yeah. suban uh we all know the situation because it's, it's owned the hockey world for the last uh, five or six days here and uh, I, I chose to post 
uh, not in support of anybody, uh, but just basically that my thought was that when you looked at the incident and Jacob Panetta's reaction to it um, and his explanation for what happened, looking at the video and and seeing it all after the fact. And again, there's going to be more information that will come out in this. But to me, I looked at it and thought, you know what? His explanation is plausible. Not telling you it's fact. In my opinion, it seemed plausible. And I just felt it was important that we all consider the fact that maybe he was not trying to be racist in this particular issue. And I, you know, I posted that and that wasn't, you know, a defense of one person or an indictment of the other, but it was just, can we just look at the possibility of what if, and, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I I thought a lot about it before I posted this and I, and I spoke to people, you know, at TSN and colleagues um, because everybody had to wear it to a degree if I was going to post on it. And, you know, normally I just kind of do what I want. Um, no one encouraged me to do it. Like, or no one came to me and said, hey, we'd really like you to do this. They were certainly supportive, but it was my thought, my emotion, my feeling uh, that led me to do this. And, uh, you know, the reaction was predictable and none of it good because even the people that supported supported it weren't necessarily the people I was trying to reach, right? Like, I'm not trying to re- reach a bunch of, um, you know, conservative voices that want to, you know, hate on the woke mob and, you know, rip apart what they call cancel culture. Like, you know, I'm not necessarily right. in that camp, but those are the people that support you. And then on the other side, you get people that say, you, you, don't, you know, you don't get it because this is just racist and want to react. Um, what's your take on, on not so, just what I posted, but the reaction? No, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, more than anything, I, I just said, you know, well, it's tough. Like my reaction was not, I have nothing but respect as you know, for, for you and your point of view, especially on these issues, um, which, uh, which I don't share, you know, because of my privilege, but I more than anything, just think that, uh, the type of subtle discussion that you wanted to have, which wasn't, which wasn't, um, necessarily about the idea of like the benefit of the doubt or misinterpretation, but, but was a wider discussion about the understanding extended to people who are cast a certain way as a result of an incident, right? I mean, that was more than anything what I thought you were trying to have a, a more important discussion about, which was like consequences and a path toward forgiveness, right? The yeah, idea of it, learning. Yeah. And for me, it was just, it's like, consider all of it because in this time that we're dealing with, and you know, the last 18 months, especially on the subject of race, there seems to be no room to consider the alternative or for nuance or subtle discussion. And I'll be honest with you, the one person in all of it that I was not being critical of was Jordan Subban, because Jordan Subban has every right to react the way he did, right? We haven't lived, you know, like, I mean, I haven't lived what he's lived. I mean, I've had my own issues with race, not extensive, right? I feel very fortunate to not have experienced a lot of racism, so much so that the few moments I've had in my life, um, really really resonate with me right like walking Mm -hmm. with a relative down the street when i was a child and having that person just spit on like someone spit in her face right for nothing like just in we were just walking 
right? And so, and, and I say that because it just stuck with me so much as a young person. I, you know, I wasn't even, you know, I was about eight or nine years old. Um, yeah. But I've had such little of that in my life that those moments really stick with me. So I can't imagine what Jordan Subban or any of the Subban brothers have been through going through hockey and other people in the Hockey Diversity Alliance, right? Because mm -hmm. what they deal with is real. And in that moment for Jordan Subban, that even if uh, Panetta was not attempting to be racist, if you just listen to the audio from it, you know, there was cat calls and racist remarks screamed at him in the stands, Right. And so, yeah, he should have reacted the way he did. Like, I get it, right? But for everybody else to want to immediately jump on it because you feel that's the expectation, that it's not enough to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. And this is a demonstration of that. So regardless of your color, you feel like you have to weigh into the issue. And I've certainly weighed into the issue in previous times, like during Black Lives Matter and how police deal with certain people and what's going on, that I will react immediately without diving into it deeper. Um, and for whatever reason, in this one, I just felt compelled to just stop and listen and take a deeper look at it. You know, and again, more information may come out, which may view may change my view on on either one of these uh, either one of these issues. And again. Jordan Subban, I totally get why he reacted the way he did, but it's it's kind of everybody else and the bigger discussion because I think as a person of race, you know, people say, I don't want your sympathy. I want your empathy, right? Like you don't need to feel bad that, you know, my aunt who I was walking with had her face spit on. Like you don't need uh -huh. to feel bad, right? Like I don't need your sympathy, but just have a little bit of empathy, like be, have the ability to put yourself in that place. So the flip side is, as someone of race that is looking for people who aren't of race to have that empathy, I have to allow them to have that empathy. I can't just say you don't get it. That's not reasonable, right? So that's where I want the discussion to go. And more than anything, I hope Jacob Panetta was not intending to be racist because I want there to be less racism in the world. I don't want to be right. I just want there to be less racism in the world. And I want there to be less racism in hockey. So for me, I hope that we misunderstood his actions and that maybe he was being truthful. I'm hopeful that that was the case because at least one time it wasn't racism. Well, I think it's a it, I, more than anything I have the utmost respect for your point of view. And I, and I think it's always, you're never, you're never wrong to share something that you feel strongly about, you know, especially when it's something nuanced like this and that you are uniquely qualified and, and capable of, of expressing, um, you know, I think it was uh, good on you to do, but I do, I do worry that Twitter twists these types of discussions and makes them, makes them harder to, oh, to, for sure. It makes yeah. it harder to almost see through um, or, or have the truthful or honest conversation or the helpful conversation. So that was more, more than anything what I was reacting to. No, I know. Um, and you're, you're truth, like I said, Twitter's the wrong place because, you know, really 5% of people, if that got what I was saying, yeah. and, you know, like 50% wanted to carve me for not reacting the way everybody did when it immediately happened. And, and the other 50% or, you know, whatever, 45% was, you know, that other side that I don't want to be identified with either, right? Like there was, no, no. there was kind of no win in it, which, which right. was disappointing, but, but the, I just felt the need to say what a lot of people I knew were feeling, 
but couldn't yeah. say right and well, uh, and yeah so it was important to me from that perspective no, and, and and i've been there I, I mean well the one that i remember is the bubble right where where um uh, the context got lost on one of the chirps and I felt the need to clarify it because I had parts of the transcript that, you know, in my opinion, made it abundantly clear that no racial epithet or, or no racial slant um, had been present in, in a particular chirp that had been widely misinterpreted uh, on the Internet. Um, and, and even that time, you know, people like don't believe you. They're like, you're lying. Why are you covering for the NHL? It's like, I would never do that. <laughs> I would never do yeah. that. If they think no, that they don't know you. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a tough medium. It's such a tough medium to have adult conversations in. Um, you know, I, I do think that this is a, a complicated one. And uh, I suppose as, as just my final thought, uh, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is, you know, how, like, I think a lot about times before I was sort of wise to or more sensitive to or more empathetic to how other people experience things. And I laugh when I get uncomfortable, right? Like one thing, one thing that I do a lot is I laugh at everything. I, I laugh easily. People think it's fake on the podcast. It's not. I'm like this all the time. And, <laughs> and I, I often think about times in my life where like someone said something that I didn't really agree with or like, but I just sort of laughed it off just to kind of diffuse my own discomfort. And then I think about all the people who've like seen me laugh at something like that and just th in their experience thought that I was supporting it. You know, like I, I'm a large white dude just like laughing like an idiot at something, you know, that, that was said or that was done around me or that I witnessed. Right. And I, I often think like that was a really unhelpful moment and I might have contributed to how someone felt like I think a lot about the little things we can do to make people understand and feel more comfortable day to day. Uh, I think a lot about that in terms of my own actions. I think a lot about that in terms of masking too. Like one fun reason I don't complain too much about masking is like, I've got some neighbors who are uh, elderly, for example. And I just think like, if they see me still wearing a mask, hopefully they'll be more comfortable to go in public and live their life the way I do. You know what I mean? Like, hopefully that will help them think like, oh, he's taking it seriously. People are taking it seriously. I'm comfortable to go out and, you know, go about my business normally. And uh, I think about that a lot. And I think you do have an obligation to monitor your own be behavior to make sure that someone like Jordan Subban in that situation has no room to misinterpret it or feel like that. Because he was, as you say, you know, his reaction was entirely fair and intent or not, like it's, it's on you to make sure there's no gray area as someone in Panetta's shoes. That, that's just my view. And, and that's, that's a fair. standard that I hold myself to, too. That's fair. Uh, who do you got this weekend? Who do I got? Oh, buddy. Okay. I got a four team. I've already bet a four team fold. So you let me know. You let me know what you think of this bet overall. Okay. And it, it will... As we go through my, uh, my, you know, very, very in control and, and not at all a problem <laughs> gambling habit, um, <laughs> we will, uh, I will also reveal I my should, I shouldn't laugh there. I apologize. No, no. And I shouldn't make the joke either. Please, please, if you do bet, bet responsibly. Know your limit. Play within it, as I say on the radio, uh, whenever I bring up Canucks-related uh, lines. Um the bet that I have is as follows, and, I, and and this is also my picks. So I've got the Rams 
on the money line over the San Francisco 49ers. And I've got the under 46.5 points. I don't think either team is going to reliably be able to move the ball against either team's defense. But the Rams are going to do a better job of it than the, than the Niners. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the Rams do have an opportunity to exploit some things in San Francisco's secondary. Yeah. Um, but but, uh, but the they've still got to deal with the... Yeah. The Niners run game is so good and it's going to have trouble against Donald and company. I do think that. Uh, I think you're going to see a really good defensive performance by the, the Rams front seven. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of them. I've lost, they've cost me a lot of money already, Farhan. Yeah, I for me, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I would take the Rams on the money line and I would, I would take the under. I, that, that one's closer for me, but I would take the under. And then I've got the Chiefs over the Bengals as much as it pains me. I lo- I'm, I'm going to be rooting hard for the Bengals and I think they've got a shot. I don't, I like, I wouldn't be taking the points. I wouldn't be taking the Chiefs with the points, but I'm going to take the Chiefs on the money line. And I'm teasing that with the over 54.5. Yeah, I think it's absolutely going to go over, but I, uh, and I'm picking the Chiefs to win. And I, I'm kind of right on the line there as far as whether or not I want to take the seven points because, you know, I, I just like in, under, we all understand that that line is there to create betting on both sides. It's not there because you think of how a game may or may not go. And for right. a, a close game could still be an eight or nine point decision in favor. Like, I don't think this is going to come down to a, uh, a game winning walk off field goal for the Kansas City Chiefs. I do think they're going to be able to to win the game. I'm not going to say comfortably, but uh, the money line is probably the smart way to play it. But um, I just look at that Kansas City or sorry, I just look at that Cincinnati offensive line. Uh, I know how good Tennessee was, um, but they're going to struggle to protect Joe Burrow. And I don't think oh. Jamar Chase is going to run amok. And I wow. say that, I say that ah. because, hear me, I say that because the Chiefs were able to eliminate Stefan Diggs, which was their goal going into that game. Right? Like as far as the receiving core, that's who they were trying to take away. They played far less press man coverage than they did against Cincinnati in the first game. If you've watched their trends the last two games, they're playing more zone coverage. If Teron Matthew plays and Daniel Sorensen doesn't, it's going to do some really good things for that secondary. And look, Jamar Chase is still going to have a 100-yard game, but he's not going to go crazy like he did when they played in Week 17. So... yeah, he's not going to go. He's not going to go mean, crazy. I don't he's think gonna he's going to have, have 250 yards. <laughs> I think he's going to. I think he's going to be six for one under 110. Yeah, I mean, look, I can see that, and okay. uh, and, and that certainly won't, that won't allow him to take over the game. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I accept this. I just, I just. So I have two questions for you. The first one is this: Do you remember how that Chiefs 34 31 loss to the Bengals? Yeah, uh, played out. Do you remember the last two minutes? Yeah, I remember. It, I remember thir- uh, third and twenty-seven, and it, seemed, and it seemed wild, right? Like it seemed like what? What are the Bengals doing? Do you think about it any differently that they basically tried to waste the whole two minutes in light of what Casey did to Buffalo last week? Uh, yeah, like look, I I think they were wrong for how they handled the end of that game, right? Like I I think Zach Taylor needed to give his head a shake. Um, for those See, last I couple so of plays. Too, and now I'm like, that's the way to play the Chiefs. If you have yeah. a chance to, if you'd have a chance to strangle them in the cradle, <laughs> take it. Don't give them the ball. Yeah. Fourth down and throwing it in that situation. I'm I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Like I, I look, I appreciate the aggressiveness. They got bailed out. They got but bailed understand out. they got bailed out by two calls, 
right? Like they got they bailed out for sure. big time. So again, yeah, you know, fair, like fair. I, I just, I look at that offensive line and it's bad. Um, and I don't think you're going to see as much press man coverage and, and all out blitz that they brought in that game because of how good Burrow is against it. So I think you're going to see a different defensive approach by Kansas City. And Joe Burrow is great. Like he is not going to wilt in the moment, right? I, I'm, I'm not sitting the, that guy the, that says he's a, no. he's a kid and he's not ready. Bullshit. No, no, no. He's ready. He's, 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 he's ready. He's a stone-cold stiller. But the Chiefs are better. T. Higgins is overrated. No, stop T. it. T. Higgins is overrated. Stop The Chiefs it. are better. And Kansas, so Kansas City win. T. Higgins, T. Higgins is no worse than the fourth best receiver in this in this game. T. Higgins is no worse than the fourth best receiver. Maybe, and I'm maybe. including Travis Kelsey. No, I know you are. I know you are. But uh, who yeah, would you have over him? Be close with McCall Hartman. Be close with who? McCall Hartman. Oh my God! Stop it! I'm stop telling that. you. I, I think T. Higgins is overrated. Oh my God! Oh my God! I would take Tyler Boyd. I would take Pringle. Over Hardman, yeah. You know what? I would. Well, even Pringle, I would take over. Uh, no, I would take over T. Higgins. No, stop it! Stop it! You're going to regret <laughs> this when when we record on Monday. And I'm yeah, like, but ah, he's go- he's going to have to be Gabriel. T. Higgins. T. Higgins is going to have to be Gabriel Davis. T. Higgins is going to have at least Which two drops right, this week. He's better than Gabriel. No, he's better. He's going to have Gabriel at least Davis. two drops this week. T. Higgins is going to have at least two key drops. Man, T. Higgins. T. Higgins is really good, and he's a big X factor for the Bengals. Um. I think this one's going to be close. I'm not taking the points, um, but I am taking the Chiefs on the money line. They're my pick. So we're aligned. We're both picking the same teams again, which is good because we didn't do quite so well last week when we, uh, or certainly I didn't do quite so well last week when we split it up. Well, for, for me, I, at the beginning of the season, I picked Kansas City and the Rams to get to the Super Bowl. So when that happens, I'll go back and play that So for everybody So because that's real. I put that out on Twitter. I put that out uh, on my football pod with Moj. But I did pick the I did pick the Bills last week, and yeah. you know, I, and I wanted Kansas City to win, but I did pick the Bills. And two weeks earlier, I had the nerve of picking the Cardinals. Um, so those things didn't go well. But in the end, my original instinct from the beginning of the year has gone so far so good. So I'm going to ride with that. Yeah. Uh, just well, so now, can, now you are. Have I you have gone away from cho- it? <laughs> what, yeah, that's right. What choice do I have? <laughs> what hey, choice uh, do you have? The choice you made the last two weeks. <laughs> that's right. Cam Talbot of the Minnesota Wild joins Michael Russo on Straight from the Source, ahead of the Rangers retiring Henrik Lundqvist's jerseys this week. Jersey this week. Ian Mendes and Down Goes Brown have the Athletic Hockey Show on Thursday. And as for us, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Oh, oh. oh. Can I do one more thing? I want to I wanna give some dap to Keith Yandel. I worked 250 games on his 965 consecutive run. Nice. That lasted since 2009. My favorite Keith Yandel thing that he that he re- would regularly do is, uh, you know, players sometimes bring complaints about the stats to the PR guy, right? PR guy is the go-between, and they sort of get the stats adjusted visa uh, or you know through the uh, off-ice officials. And so he'd bring me the stats, and he'd be like, "Oh, one block shot." Uh, what Keith? Did you have more than that? No, 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 no. New career high. <laughs> Three hits. Like, did you have more than that, Keith? Like, no, no. I've, I've never had that. They got it wrong. <laughs> um, Keith Yandel, one of the all-time best. Um, awesome career. Awesome run. To to get to a thousand, like, if he gets to a thousand consecutive, I mean, he's already accomplished something outrageous, but. He has an outside chance of getting to a thousand. No, he has a real chance of getting to a thousand consecutive games played as a defenseman. 
incredible. Honestly, incredible. It's it was wild to see it up 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 and close, and I uh, was very happy for him yesterday. Well, congratulations to him because uh, again, one of those Cal Ripken type of moments. You're not sure if and when you'll see that ever get broken, but uh, good for him. One of the good guys in the NHL. Uh, as I was saying, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. Our show returns Monday. We go on Monday, Wednesday next week. Monday, Wednesday next week. We'll go before the doubleheader and we'll go after. All right. Enjoy the weekend, my friend. We'll talk soon. You too. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go Bengals. Go Chiefs. Go Chiefs.